Hi, I'm Michael G. Williams, and welcome to Social Distancing Radio. I'm a novelist, and a reader and friend asked if I would read from my work as something they might find comforting and familiar amidst the uncertainty and anxiety we're experiencing from multiple sources in 2020. As of this opening, I've read Perishables, the first book of my five-book vampire and urban fantasy series, The Withrow Chronicles, published by Falstaff Books, aka falstaffbooks.com. If you'd like to pick up a copy for yourself, head over to bit.ly, that's B-I-T dot L-Y slash Perishables link. Now I'm reading from my short stories and other works, and occasionally I'll invite on a writer friend for special episodes called Public Domain Radio. Thanks for listening. Okay, let's get back into Dracula. I was going to say, let's have a sip of reading tea before I start up, because I'm doing this in the middle of the afternoon, but the cat just stuck his face in the reading tea, and he's not very likely to be the one reading, so I'm just going to have to make do. I'm just going to have to go at it the way I am. All right. So when last we left, Arthur has just volunteered to be the one to stake Lucy in her tomb. Take this stake in your left hand, ready to place the point over the heart and the hammer in your right. Then when we begin our prayer for the dead, I shall read him. I have here the book and the others shall follow. Strike in God's name that so all may be well with the dead that we love and that the undead pass away. Arthur took the stake and the hammer, and when once his mind was set on action, his hands never trembled nor even quivered. Van Helsing opened his missile and began to read, and Quincy and I followed as well as we could. Arthur placed the point over the heart, and as I looked, I could see its dent in the white flesh. Then he struck with all his might. The thing in the coffin writhed and a hideous, blood-curdling screech came from the opened red lips. The body shook and quivered and twisted in wild contortions. The sharp white teeth champed together till the lips were cut, and the mouth was smeared with a crimson foam. But Arthur never faltered. He looked like a figure of Thor as his untrembling arm rose and fell, driving deeper and deeper the mercy-bearing stake, whilst the blood from the pierced heart welled and spurted up around it. His face was set, and high duty seemed to shine through it. The sight of it gave us courage so that our voices seemed to ring through the little vault. And then the writhing and quivering of the body became less, and the teeth seemed to champ, and the face to quiver. Finally it lay still. The terrible task was over. The hammer fell from Arthur's hand. He reeled and would have fallen had we not caught him. The great drops of sweat sprang from his forehead, and his breath came in broken gasps. It had indeed been an awful strain on him, and had he not been forced to his task by more than human considerations, he could never have gone through with it. For a few minutes we were so taken up with him that we did not look towards the coffin. When we did, however, a murmur of startled surprise ran from one to the other of us. We gazed so eagerly that Arthur rose, for he had been seated on the ground, and came and looked too, and then a glad, strange light broke over his face and dispelled altogether the gloom of horror that lay upon it. 
There in the coffin lay no longer the foul thing that we had so dreaded and grown to hate that the work of her destruction was yielded as a privilege to the one best entitled to it. But Lucy, as we had seen her in her life, with her face of unequaled sweetness and purity. True that there were there, as we had seen them in life, the traces of care and pain and waste. But these were all dear to us, for they marked her truth to what we knew. One and all, we felt that the holy calm that lay like sunshine over the wasted face and form was only an earthly token and symbol of the calm that was to reign forever. Van Helsing came and laid his hand on Arthur's shoulder and said to him, And now, Arthur, my friend, dear lad, am I not forgiven? The reaction of the terrible strain came as he took the old man's hand in his, and raising it to his lips, pressed it and said, Forgiven! God bless you that you have given my dear one her soul again and me peace. He put his hands on the professor's shoulder, and laying his head on his breast, cried for a while silently whilst we stood unmoving. When he raised his head, Van Helsing said to him, And now, my child, you may kiss her. Kiss her dead lips, if you will, as she would have you to, if for her to choose. For she is not a grinning devil now, not any more a foul thing for all eternity. No longer she is the devil's undead. She is God's true dead, whose soul is with him. Arthur bent and kissed her, and then we sent him and Quincy out of the tomb. The professor and I sawed the top off the stake, leaving the point of it in the body. Then we cut off the head and filled the mouth with garlic. We soldered up the leaden coffin, screwed on the coffin lid, and gathered up our belongings, came away. When the professor locked the door, he gave the key to Arthur. Outside, the air was sweet, the sun shone, and the birds sang, and it seemed as if all nature were tuned to a different pitch. There was gladness and mirth and peace everywhere, for we were at rest ourselves on one account, and we were glad, though it was with a tempered joy. Before we moved away, Van Helsing said, Now, my friends, one step of our work is done, one the most harrowing to ourselves, but there remains a greater task, to find out the author of all this our sorrow and to stamp him out. I have clues which we can follow, but it is a long task and a difficult, and there is danger in it and pain. Shall you not all help me? We have learned to believe, all of us, is it not so? And since so, do we not see our duty? Yes, and do we not promise to go on to the bitter end? Each in turn we took his hand and the promise was made. Then said the professor as we moved off, Two nights hence you shall meet with me and dine together at seven of the clock with friend John. I shall entreat two others, two that you know not as yet, and I shall be ready to all our work show and our plans unfold. Friend John, you come with me home, for I have much to consult about, and you can help me. Tonight I leave for Amsterdam, but shall return tomorrow night, and then begins our great quest. But first I shall have much to say, so that you may know what is to do and to dread. Then our promise shall be made to each other anew, for there is a terrible task before us, and once our feet are on the plowshare, we must not draw back. Chapter 17 Dr. Seward's Diary Continued When we arrived at the Berkeley Hotel, Van Helsing found a telegram waiting for him. I'm coming up by train. Jonathan at Whitby. Important news. Mina Harker. 
The professor was delighted. Ah, that wonderful Madame Mina, he said. Pearl among women. She arrived, but I cannot stay. She must go to your house, friend John. You must meet her at the station. Telegraph her en route, so that she may be prepared. When the wire was dispatched, he had a cup of tea. Over it, he told me of a diary kept by Jonathan Harker when abroad, and gave me a typewritten copy of it, as also of Mrs. Harker's diary at Whitby. Take these, he said, and study them well. When I have returned, you will be master of all the facts, and we can then better enter in on our inquisition. Keep them safe, for there is in them much of treasure. You will need all your faith, even you who have had such an experience as that of today. What is here told, he laid his hand heavily and gravely on the packet of papers as he spoke, may be the beginning of the end to you and me and many another, or it may sound the knell of the undead who walk the earth. Read all, I pray you, with the open mind. And if you can add in any way to the story here told, do so, for it is all important. You have kept a diary of all these so strange things, is it not so? Yes. Then we shall go through all these together when we meet. He then made ready for his departure, and shortly after drove off to Liverpool Street. I took my way to Paddington, where I arrived about fifteen minutes before the train came in. The crowd melted away after the bustling fashion common to an arrival platform, and I was beginning to feel uneasy, lest I might miss my guest, when a sweet-faced, dainty-looking girl stepped up to me, and after a quick glance said, "'Dr. Seward, is it not?' "'And you are Mrs. Harker,' I answered at once, whereupon she held out her hand. "'I knew you from the description of poor dear Lucy, but—' She stopped suddenly, and a quick blush overspread her face. The blush that rose to my own cheeks somehow set us both at ease, for it was such a tacit answer to her own.' I got her luggage, which included a typewriter, and we took the underground to Fenshort Street. After I had sent a wire to my housekeeper to have a sitting room and bedroom prepared at once for Mrs. Harker. In due time, we arrived. She knew, of course, that the place was a lunatic asylum, but I could see that she was unable to repress a shudder when we entered. She told me that, if she might, she would come presently to my study, as she had much to say. So here I am, finishing my entry in my phonograph diary whilst I await her. As yet, I have not had the chance of looking at the papers which Van Helsing left with me. Though they lie open before me, I must get her interested in something, so that I may have an opportunity of reading them. She does not know how precious time is, or what a task we have in hand. I must be careful not to frighten her. Here she is. And I think that's a good place to stop. We'll pick it up next time with Mina's take on that conversation, because... Okay, before we go there, though, like, A, I love when I work with a huge cast, has a bunch of characters who don't all know what everybody else knows. So I love that. B, um, I love the way that, like, he's all like, oh, gosh, I guess I'd have to better be careful telling this Mina Harker lady about vampires. Um, boy, does he not know what is coming. And there's just a lot to love about this. Uh, I don't love Lucy being dispatched. Um, I don't know. But one of the things that I do love about that is that Arthur like faints afterwards and nobody thinks that's bad or a big deal or unmanly or anything like that. And like, I feel like in an American take on this now, anyway, now that we're fucking riddled with toxic masculinity as a culture, then I think that uh, it's a lot likelier that that scene would have been written where 
You know, he was all like stolid and determined and felt nothing. And then when he returned home, a single tear, etc. Nah, none of that here. He does it. And then he just faints. And then he has to just sit on the ground for a while while everybody is like, it's a cool man. You know, get your bearings again. Um, that was really interesting to me. I liked it a lot. So anyway, sorry. Next time we'll pick it up uh, towards the beginning of chapter 17 with Mina Harker's journal. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. This podcast is released under Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives License. The theme music is Bucked Contemporary Boom by Kara Square, available under a Creative Commons Attribution License at ccmixter.org. <laughs>